For the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBLO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. Today I speak with someone who models activism, intellect, and spirituality, Matthew Fox. His latest book is called A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. Welcome, Matthew Fox, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. Thomas Merton wrote a letter to you with suggestions of where you should go for your theological education. You reprint that uh, letter in your book, and and you took him up on it, and you ended up studying in Paris. Uh, My question is, what was your relationship uh, with Thomas Merton, and and why did you seek his opinion? Well, uh, like many um, young Catholics in the 1950s, I read Merton as a teenager and uh, was uh, moved by him. And, of course, in the 60s, which is when I wrote him in 1967, just the year before he he was murdered, um, in the 60s, he had become a very uh, prominent uh, figure because, for example, he was the first religious figure in America to come out against the Vietnam War. He beat King to it. And King was a friend of his. In fact, an interesting story that came out in my research was that uh, uh, the the weekend that, that King was murdered, he had been scheduled to go to Merton's monastery along with Thich Nhat Hanh. The three of them were going to have a joint retreat together at Merton's monastery. But the last minute, King backed out because of the garbage strike uh, march in Memphis, and he chose to do that instead, which was, of course, a very fateful decision. But uh, so Merton was just very involved politically and and spiritually. Of course, he had a, a great depth of spirit because of his... Um, contemplative lifestyle there. So anyway, when my Dominican superiors uh, said I, I could go to Europe to get a doctorate in spiritual, I said, great. And uh, I decided to ask Merton about where to go. He said to go to Paris. And it's there that I met my mentor, Pierre Chenu, a wonderful, at that time, 75-year-old French Dominican, who was a founder, really, of liberation theology, because he came out of the worker-priest movement uh, with um, uh, Marxists, uh, unions and so forth after the Second World War. In fact, he was forbidden to teach or preach or write for 12 years by Pope Pius XII because he was so socially justice committed. But uh, so Chenu named the creation spiritual tradition for me, and that changed my life and set me on my course. So I can rightly say that all the trouble I've gotten in since I returned from Paris is due to Thomas Merton because he <laughs> sent me there. So this book is kind of a payback. <laughs> well, that's it's good. my thank you to him. I was going to ask this question at the end, but I'm going to ask it right now, because you started off by saying Thomas Merton was murdered. Um, he died young, murdered at, at the age of 53. But this is the Wikipedia entry for Thomas Merton's death. It says, on December 10th, 1968, Merton was in Bangkok, Thailand, attending an interfaith conference between Catholic and non-Christian monks. While stepping out of his bath, he was accidentally electrocuted by an electric fan. End. That's the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> but you, Matthew Fox, believe that's that wasn't an accident. What was he doing in Bangkok, and what do you think happened? Well, he, 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 he had just finished giving a talk entitled Karl Marx and Monasticism, which was not the most prudent title for a talk in Southeast Asia in 1968 <laughs> at the height of the Vietnam War, as you may, as you may recognize. Um, he had been getting um, death threats for years uh, from the FBI, and, and they had been then the CA had tapped his phone and intercepted his mail, just as they did to King. And um, I have spoken to three CIA agents over the last 30 years 
who were there at the time, I said, did you guys kill Thomas Burton? The first one said, I will neither affirm it nor deny it. The second one said, we in the CIA at that time in Southeast Asia were flooded with money. There was absolutely no accountability whatsoever. If even one CIA agent felt Burton was a threat to the country, he could have had him done in with no questions asked. And um, remember that Merton was the mentor to the Berrigan brothers who went frequently to his monastery for gatherings. And, um, and of course, the FBI were chasing the Berrigan brothers all over America. And uh, so they knew that Merton was the mentor to these um, radical, uh, though nonviolent, um, Catholic priests who went to jail frequently uh, protesting the war in Vietnam and nuclear war in general. And then the third person I asked um, was this past year after my book came out. I said, uh, did you guys kill Merton? And he said, yes. And he said, the last 40 years of my life, I have spent cleansing my soul from what I did in the name of uh, the CIA when I was a young man in Southeast Asia. So I think uh, it's a, a proven deal that Merton was, was murdered. Uh, for one thing, uh, he was there in Bangkok at the height of summer. It was December 10th, that summer in Bangkok. And he arrived the day before. So certainly he had this fan on the day before and it didn't kill him. So what is this? Why did it have this terrible short in it the next day after he'd given his talk uh, when he stepped out of his shower um, and supposedly plugged the fan in? Now, you and I would not step out of a shower soaked and wet and plug a fan in the wall. And Merton was not... Um, an abstract kind of guy. He was very grounded. So I think it's um, it stretches credibility to think that he stepped out of a shower soaking wet and plugged the fan in, and that's what did it. The, the, clearly, they did see that there was a, a serious short in the um, in the fan. But again, I say he must have used it before uh, he went off to do his talk, and so I think it's very very likely that someone snuck in there when he was speaking and did, uh, did him in that way. I'm speaking with uh, Matthew Fox. His latest book is A Way to God, uh, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. The church, of course, in its various forms, has told us the way to God. Uh, in a nutshell, we're, we're fallen from grace because of original sin. The good news is that uh, we can be redeemed by Christ's sacrifice and then uh, united with God in heaven. And you've been working on a way to God that's quite different. You've written volumes on creation spirituality, and you've paid the price for it in your own career as a Catholic priest and theologian silenced by the Vatican. I want just to catch people up. Uh, if you're in the elevator, how would you contrast creation spirituality with uh, the fall redemption model? of default Christianity? Well, I would say they're mere opposites of each other. Um, Fall redemption theology is very patriarchal, uh, and and, uh, Christian spirituality uh, welcomes the feminist and the divine feminine, along with a healthy masculine and not a patriarchal masculine. Uh, Creation spirituality is, of course, uh, acknowledging the holiness and the sacredness of creation. A good example of that is the struggle going on today up at um, um, a, uh, Rock. What's I'm call uh, it? Standing Rock. Standing Rock, you see. The whole question there is how sacred is water? That's, mm. that's how the chief of the Standing Rock tribe put it. It's, only about the, it's about the sacredness of water. And what is that in opposition to? The sacredness of oil, of oil, 
uh, profits. That's what it's in opposition to. So that's the struggle going on uh, at this very moment. And it's always going on. And of course, the whole environmental crisis is because we've lost the sense of the sacredness of creation. And so we've been going willy-nilly for for centuries now uh, in our anthropocentric, and what Pope Francis rightly calls our, our narcissistic uh, commitment to 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 human so-called progress at the expense of of the rest of creation. So um, now the Fall Redemption tradition doesn't acknowledge the sacredness of creation. Uh, uh, um, Saint Augustine, who's really the father of that tradition, says that, uh, and he's the one who invented original sin. By the way, in the fourth century, uh, Jesus never heard of original sin. No Jew has ever heard of original sin, and so um, the tradition of original blessing which is that of creation spirituality, It was is what is really in the Bible, and it's really um, uh, the Jewish tradition, and therefore Jesus' tradition. So um, Christ spirituality is not anti-Semite by any means. It's, it's always trying to recover the, the essence of the, uh, of the Jewish tradition, and that's what Jesus was doing uh, when he called for compassion, for example. Compassion being in Judaism, the, the secret uh, name, name for God. So, Christ um, uh, spirituality is both mystical and prophetic, and by that I mean it both addresses the need for love and uh, connecting to the whole uh, of um, uh, of the heart, but it also um, is is critical of social injustice, economic, racial, uh, and eco injustice, and and calls us to act uh, and to be uh, critically to think critically about the issues of our time. And so Christ spirituality is not anti-intellectual, whereas fall redemption is anti-intellectual. Uh, for example, the example obvious now is the whole fear of science, the, the ignoring of science when it comes to the environment, for example, or anything else, including the whole subject of homosexuality. That's not a biblical question. It's a scientific question. It's a, it's the Galileo case of our time. Science has spoken that eight or so percent of the human species is going to be gay or lesbian and get over it. Um, we've also counted 464 other species with gay and lesbian populations. So it's, it's integral to nature, though obviously homosexuality is a, is a minority, but it doesn't mean that it's unnatural. In fact, it's unnatural to demand heterosexuality of homosexuals. So um, there are many areas then in which um, these two traditions differ very, very broadly. And the whole tradition, what I've been showing is, is this isn't... Uh, what should I say, a liberal perspective from the 20, 21st century, this is found in the, in the oldest traditions, the, our greatest mystics. For example, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said that Revelation comes in two volumes, the Bible and nature. So there you have it. Nature itself is a, is a source of revelation. But this is completely ignored by those Bible-thumping um, uh, preachers who want to beat you over the head with a book that was, that's only 2,000 years old, and well, nature is 13.8 billion years old. So I think nature has a lot to teach us. And this is why science is so important, because scientists uh, spend their lives trying to discern what are the real facts and the real mysteries uh, in nature. So Chris Pichero is very partial to incorporating a healthy science into our our worldview. And the whole idea of the cosmic Christ is a wonderful archetype is mirrored in the East with the Buddha nature, 
or in Judaism with the image of God, but the idea that that all beings contain the Christ. Every being is another Christ. Um, that's not how fall redemption sees it. Fall redemption sees only Jesus as, as a Christ. But in Christ's spirituality, we are all called to acknowledge the holiness of all being, including every one of us. And with that uh, dignity comes responsibility. Yeah, and this is important uh, to talk about. Uh, you mentioned this isn't just a 20th century new kind of hippie theology, creation spirituality, right? <laughs> right. I mean, we're t- it Not goes back age, all the right. way to Amos and Isaiah. It's 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 all the way through, perhaps underground. I don't know if that's the right word, uh-huh. but um, uh, but definitely a part of it. Uh, the church has uh, well condemned people throughout. If it hasn't been able to ignore them, it's condemned them, like uh, Meister <laughs> Eckhart, right? So exactly, and even Thomas exactly. Merton thought that Eckhart uh, was a heretic or outside the Christian tradition at first, and and he himself had to evolve from the fall redemption to a more creation spirituality viewpoint. Exactly, exactly. He entered the monastery in 1940, and and uh, he was he himself. It comes through in his autobiography, which was a, a big bestseller in America, uh, called Seven Story Mountain. He's very dualistic. He's very patriarchal. He's very guilt-ridden and shame-ridden in that autobiography. And then for the first 18 years of his uh, monastic um, uh, life, he was writing in that vein. But in 1958, he met Dr. Suzuki, the uh, Zen master from Japan who brought Zen to North America. And Suzuki really converted him. He said, you must read Thomas, you must read Meister Eckhart, your one Zen thinker of the West. And, um, and, uh, and Merton did that and it shifted him entirely 180 degrees there's, there's a different Merton from 1958 to 1960 when he died. And, uh, in those 10 years, he became very uh, much a pioneer in, in, uh, opening up to the East. He wrote books on Zen. He wrote books on, on, uh, on, uh, Taoism on Sufism and he became very ecumenical. And on that last journey uh, to the East, uh, he met the Dalai Lama, who at the time was only 32 years old. They really hit it off. And in fact, the Dalai Lama since has said that Thomas Merton is my spiritual father. And just this past year, uh, the Dalai Lama was asked, uh, do you believe in God? And if so, what kind of God do you believe in? And the Dalai Lama hesitated. And then he said, I believe in the God of Thomas Merton. Which I think is a pretty fun endorsement from a from a Buddhist uh, a Buddhist uh, leader of great uh, stature, but um, and and of course uh, Merton also became very close to Thich Nhat Hanh, who in fact nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize after he died. Merton was his last years was writing in his notebook, Eckhart is my lifeboat. Eckhart is my lifeboat. So Eckhart really converted Merton from being this dualistic, guilt-ridden, fall redemption monk to being a prophetic Christian and, and who brought together his mysticism and, and a passion for justice uh, in the last 10 years of his life. And frankly, I think it cost him his life. So it's really a powerful story. And um, of course, Eckhart has been very important to me too. I've written three books on him. And I think he really is a, a, uh, an amazing um, figure. Uh, for one thing, he is so... Um, Ecumenical, my most recent book on him, I put him in the in in different chapters. I put him in the room with with Thich Nhat Hanh and Buddhism. I put him in the room with Kumar Swami and Hinduism. I put him in the room with Black Elk and indigenous uh, 
teachers uh, and shamans. I put him in the room with uh, with Adrian Rich and feminist thinkers. Put him in the room with Carl Jung, and Jung said he owes the key to the unconscious to Meister Eckhart. So um, Eckhart is an amazing figure. He's he's uh, what should I say endorsed by Hindus and Buddhists and 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 Jews who know him too. I put him in the room with Rabbi Heschel. So uh, Eckhart is amazingly ecumenical, and yet of course he comes from the 14th century. But remember, the 14th century is pre-modern, and pre-modern consciousness. Uh, this is why I'm so drawn to Native American uh, spirituality and to medieval mystics, because your pre-modern um, uh, thinkers in the West were closer to Native American thinking than our modern thinkers. And the, the core of that is that cosmology and, cre- and, and creation, nature, are at the, the heart of their, of their spirituality. And this is so often missed in, in the modern context where everything is um, is set up in terms of of the human, and not in terms of the of the sacredness of the rest of creation. Let's talk about uh, moral outrage and activism. How can we use moral outrage creatively, rather than simply vent and be destructive? How can moral outrage be channeled for transformation? Well, first of all, um, I think we have to be careful of of bad spiritual teaching that says that anger is a, is a negative thing. Um, again, that's fall redemption teaching. That was Augustine. Whereas Aquinas said, who's in the Christ spiritual tradition, he said, nothing great happens without anger. So anger is this fire that, um, that allows us to persevere in the struggle. And um, moral outrage is found in the third chakra. It's in our gut. And of course, uh, look at it. Most of our education uh, it does not deal with the lower chakras. It, it only deals with thinking from the neck up. It's Descartes saying truth is clear and distinct ideas. Well, it isn't. It's also clear and distinct uh, feeling kicked in your gut because you've experienced injustice or, you know, you can see others who are experiencing injustice. So a part of uh, dealing with uh, anger is to pay more attention to our lower chakras. And that includes our moral outrage of the third chakra, but also our first chakra connection uh, to the to the to the universe and to the earth, because uh, it's about vibration. And all things in the universe, every atom in the universe is vibrating. Uh, it's all making music. So um, that's an invitation to connect to the earth, uh, uh, because the first chakra is engaged by dancing. Uh, that's why indigenous people dance when they pray, and that's how you connect to the sacredness of the earth. So we're not going to be dealing with ecology just with our head and with numbers. We also have to reconnect to the sacredness of the earth, and, and, and sacred dance is an example of that. And, of course, our second chakra is our sexuality. I don't think anyone can claim that our, the West has dealt healthily with sexuality, and uh, that's why these stories are now emerging about the the uh, the habitual <laughs> sexual malfeasance, not only only of a particular a presidential candidate, but of all kinds of power people. Look at Ellie, so who just got fired from Fox News uh, for his abuse of women at the workplace, and all these other stories that are coming out. You know, there's a lot more sexism going on than than uh, than <laughs> has made the, the the media clearly. All these stories coming out, so. So the, the, when, when sexuality is not healthy, it becomes one more power trip. 
So it's, it's so abuse of sexuality is is invariably a power trip, and so it's one more uh, critique we have to make of of our um, of our the way we live on the earth and the way we're alienated from our own natures. And religions done a bad job, I think, especially the Christian religion in the West, in in uh, reminding us of the sacred power of sexuality. The sexuality is a power. It's not something you you repress. It's not something you forget on the one hand, but it's also not something you want to abuse. And of course, the whole pedophile priest uh, story is is horrible, and especially the cover of it, cover up it by hierarchy. That's the the worst part of all is that cover up, uh, all in the name of the institutional uh, image. So um, all this is now coming coming out today. And and Jung predicted this about the age of Aquarius. He said that evil would no longer be under the table. It would be above the table. But the question would be, would we have the will uh, to deal with it? And I think a lot of these issues are are arising today. Um, And it's like pus coming out of a sore. You know, it's not pretty, uh, but it's probably a very good thing because we can uh, start talking more frankly about reality now. And again, I think someone like Bernie Sanders has done a great service by naming not just the pus, but also some avenues to, to, for medicine, uh, uh, to apply medicine to, this, uh, to the, the sores that we're all carrying around with us. And I think that, remember that um, Augustine came along in the fourth century at the time that Christianity inherited the empire. So a lot of his theology is kind of a, a manual on how to run an empire in the name of religion. And I think that his repression of sexuality plays a real big role in that and his repression of anger because um, moral outrage, you know, Jesus had moral outrage. He flipped the tables there with the money lenders in the temple. And in fact, scholars today um, tell us that he didn't do it alone. He, he created an action. He had dozens and dozens of helpers doing this. So it was, it was what we would call an action today, an event course there was no tv to pick it up <laughs> but uh but it was an event and the word got around this was an event you don't do this in the temple but he did it he he uh he stirred things up there and of course it had everything to do with his his crucifixion with his they're killing him because it angered not only the uh, religious establishment but the political establishment the the empire that was in cahoots with the religious establishment both both ends were upset by his his what he did by that event, and I think it had everything to do with his with his death. Yeah, we want to steer our moral outrage. So, and that's where nonviolence comes in. I mean, that's what Gandhi did. It's what King did, isn't it? They they harnessed, they they corralled the moral outrage uh, of the of blacks in the South who've been living long enough with abuse after the war, but also after the Civil War, but also uh, Gandhi uh, dealing with his countrymen, uh, dealing with the abuse of the colonial empire, the, uh, the, the English. But they, instead of just letting it turn into more anger and venting, which is kind of Donald Trump's way, just stirring the anger and, and getting scapegoats. And of course, Hitler dealt with that way too. Instead of that, they had a, a purpose. They had a design uh, that was positive about how to organize this anger. So King filling the jails, 
um, and, and marching and doing the sit-ins, all that was dealing with anger in a positive way, in a nonviolent way, not returning violence for violence. And that was his success. That, that was his power. And uh, the same method, of course, uh, he, he, he learned from Gandhi because it worked with Gandhi, too. And so I'm that's think, what we have to do. Yeah, and I'm thinking that's happening now as I'm watching and we're watching. We've mentioned it a couple of times already in North Dakota at Standing Rock. I mean, this could really be a positive movement that uh, unites a lot of people led uh, by Native Americans. Absolutely. And it is doing that. You know, I just wish the press would give it more serious attention. I wish I wish Barack Obama would go there and um, and represent our country and give a very simple talk about the sacredness of water and how we have to balance that against Wall Street profits and and who should be the winner here. And also to apologize, of course, uh, for the, the way we have mostly treated Indians over the last 500 years, but at the same time to stand with them because, as you say, they are, they are carrying the values that ultimately most of us believe in and certainly we want them for our children. And, and it's, it could be a great... Uh, lighting of the environmental um, fire as well, because this is an environmental struggle, but it's also a struggle about the sacred. You know, I wrote a book this year on the evil. One of the main points I, I learned from writing it is that the opposite of evil is not the good. The opposite of evil is the sacred. And um, that's what's going on here at Standing Rock that the sacred, and this is not an abstract thing, how sacred is water? Well, I had a Native American teacher, Buck Gosdorf, who once said to me, you want to know how sacred water is? Go without it for three days. Yeah. Very simple. Just go without it for three days. That's what sacred means, something we can't do without, something that's bigger than us. You know, I didn't make water. Did you make water? Did this, this oil company make water? Do they drink water? Well, why don't they shut up and go without water for three days? That would be a marvelous, nonviolent practice for both sides, the Native people who are protesting and the, the capitalists who are trying to ram this, this uh, oil pipe through. Why don't they all just go without water for three days and then meet and talk about what the future is? for the Missouri River, and what is it, 18 million people who depend on the Missouri River for its water, while this company wants to put um, an oil-bearing pipe underneath the Missouri River. And the, in their own their own uh, hist recent history, these pipes keep bursting all over the place. That's just how humans are, you know, we make mistakes. And, and, and so we should be very careful about making mistakes when it comes to something so radically sacred as water. Matthew Fox, thank you so much for your work uh, and for this book and for being with me today. Well, thank you, John, and thank you for your work. I'm glad you have a program like this where we can talk values, things that matter. This is Progressive Spirit. For links to podcasts, go to progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schack. Be well. Be well.